We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. At the moment, we're talking to professionals within the built environment who work to inform people in government and the public that architecture across many spectrums can benefit the community. Our guest in this episode is Sam Spur, who at the time of this recording was the Associate Professor and Head of Discipline of the Masters of Architecture at the University of Newcastle. Sam also has a special research focus on mining ideology and coal capitalism, which examines the agency of architecture to make legible the complex forces at play in the Anthropocene epoch. Sam shares how she developed her specific area of research, the traditional elements of architecture education and how it's developing, and how architects might contribute to our changing societies. I'll now pass over to Sally Sue, who is an Imagine Committee member based in New South Wales. Let's jump in. Today we have Sam Spur uh, on our uh, podcast episode and today's topic is about policy and advocacy. Please allow me to introduce Sam to our wider audience today. Hello, Sam. Hi, Sally. <laughs> Lovely to be here and talking to you again. It's great to have you on our episode here today. I've known Sam for a very long time from early days of uh, UTS in Sydney. Your bio is absolutely impressive and through the years I've seen you work through so many different research topics and your roles has shifted as you join different academia. If we were to open up today's topic on politics and advocacy, how do you normally frame that topic in relation to the work you've done to date? kind of an expansive and fantastic opening question. Um, I, I guess I would go to start off with the point that, you know, all work that we do is political. Um, it's about our ability to kind of frame it and to reflect on how that work is political. Um, I think I began my research career, as, as you may remember, a long time ago with a, with a kind of a, a real focus on formativity in the body and um you know and, and i think you know where i've come to now in terms of um examining more kind of political and social conditions for architecture in some ways seem very different but are still in the kind of same in many ways the same kind of arguments about um about agency about um the self about individual individuality but individuality now in terms of kind of collectivity and that's and that's the kind of work that i'm interested in but i think you know perhaps it's a it's a kind of a, a simple transformation for me in terms of kind of thinking about the self, thinking about my body, thinking about my body in the world, trying to understand how you kind of construct the world around you. And then the work that I'm doing now, which is I kind of working in many ways on a different scale, but it's but it's looking at that kind of agency in terms of the social body, in terms of the collective body, and trying to kind of think through the kind of the I guess the question of architecture 
in that in that situation. No, it definitely is. <laughs> because I think uh, we have uh, might have lightly touched on it in our previous conversation where whether we like it or not, we participate in a world that's inevitably, you know, involved in politics, as you describe. And I think looping it back to your current research topic, there's a story behind on how you came to focus on this topic and why it's so important for all of us to take this topic very seriously. Do you want to share with us on how that developed through a very random conversation with a colleague? <laughs> I guess this happened a few years ago when uh, the Adani coal mine was really sort of central in the news. And, you know, I guess this was probably around six years ago. And of course, it's been central for, or it's been in conversation for 10 years. And and as the years have progressed, I've often thought, well, this this story is, is not a story any longer because this is a a story that has been that has been dealt with, and the facts are, are been very kind of clearly articulated, and then and then Adani is back in in the news again. So I became very interested in what is what is a kind of a set of conditions in terms of the Adani coal mine, which is you know up in the Galilee Basin of Queensland, and it's not a single coal mine, but it's a it's a set of coal mines, which will have a huge impact on the climate if they end up going ahead. And in terms of beginning to kind of uh, think through the issues of, of the Adani coal mine. Um, what I was trying to do was was to try and kind of pass and understand what was at stake here. And it seemed very clear that it was a bad idea. And yet no one was doing anything or seemed to be doing anything about it. There seemed to be these kind of like, you know, pockets of action and activism and then these kind of really kind of clear arguments. And yet we were still kind of in the same loop where six months later um, something else would happen. Or I think at that time they had just agreed on the um, uh, funding, uh, taxpayer funding for the port that was happening at the time, I think was possibly what was what was in the news at the time. And um, I had this conversation with a friend of mine who um, was also, I believe, a teacher of yours at UTS, Eduardo Caruso, who's at Monash University. And and where we got to was, was saying, well, you know, the, the, the facts are very kind of clear in terms of why this is a, a project that shouldn't go ahead for the best interests of Australia, for the best interests of Australian, but also on a planetary scale for the best interests of, you know, of, of where we need to be in terms of global emissions. Um, and where we got to was the question about what we could do about it as architects. Was there something that we could do about it? But also that there was something that we as architects could bring to the conversation, which we thought was very important, which was understanding that actually the conditions were spatial conditions. They were kind of geolocated in a very particular way. They had very particular scalar implications. They were um, they were very particular in terms of where they were sited, how they were related in terms of kind of key spaces, whether kind of it was um, sectionally in terms of the aquifers, in terms of soil, in terms of geology, in terms of, you know, going up in terms of atmosphere, um, or whether it was horizontally or in terms of landscape, in terms of its relationship to the Great Barrier Reef and to the coastline. All of these kinds of things seemed to kind of keep coming back to spatial questions. So so that was, I guess, the beginning of a way of thinking about the role that or the skills that we could bring as architects to the kind of question of extraction and extractive landscapes. And so that's that was the kind of the start of things was a kind of a question or questions around the Adani coal mine at the time and has kind of been the 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 driver for the research that I've been doing over the last sort of six or seven years as a result. That's great to hear you talk about all of the architectural skills and language that we are able to bring to a topic like this where every audience, every listener, 
depending on their background and profession, would approach it differently. Because I think if we were to further expand that, you're in an architectural school right now, you've always taught in that realm. And that kind of skill set we've always thought was quite broad and not every architectural graduate comes out to be an architect or work specifically to what we conventionally think architects end up um, taking on as a role. And if you could expand on the, the details of that is what kind of skill set did you bring to it that made it a different type of examination? Because otherwise, the, at that time when you saw the story pan out, they were viewing it through a different lens, isn't it? Because you've once talked about how that was um, expanded and broadened. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, I mean, we might say that um, any complex problem today needs to be dealt with in a in a multi or inter or intradisciplinary way. Um, you know, I think uh, I think we need to we kind of fell into the trap in modernity of kind of thinking really in terms of kind of silos and that, you know, we could kind of operate with a kind of a focused expertise and kind of operate in that way in order to kind of problem solve. And, you know, architecture as well, you know, fell into that trap of kind of like they were solving solving particular sets of problems. Um, I think that post-modernity definitely... Um, set us up for understanding that not kind of solutions but the real way forwards comes in between disciplines and and they come through the kind of um, amazing collaborations and uh, kind of working with um, as opposed to kind of working you know on things solo um, so I used to say that you know all work on complex problems needs to be you know, cross-disciplinary I think what architects do tend to do is they do facilitate uh, working across disciplines in a really productive manner. Um, you know, we kind of, we, you know, as you well know in the work that you do and the kind of the scale that you work is that, you know, architecture is never a solo endeavour. It operates kind of constantly in collaboration, um, both in kind of real collaboration as in kind of talking to and talking with whether they're clients, builders, uh, kind of, you know, all the kind of the realm of different kind of uh, operations that we work with. But they're also kind of standing on the backs of, all the different kind of work that's being done, whether it's kind of structural engineering, whether it's you know environmental, you know ecologists, biologists, all of those things are kind of constantly um, that we're we're constantly working with. It's not just simply architects and architecture in operation. So I do think we're a discipline that is in itself deeply interdisciplinary you know I think sometimes to the point that you know we're constantly um kind of plundering and stealing and, and you know like working whether it's kind of philosophers and historians or artists or it's engineers and it's material inventors and it's you know all of those sorts of kind of areas and we're constantly kind of stealing and plundering and you know bowbirding kind of off all of those things but I also think you know a good architectural education is one that trains students to understand the kind of the collective endeavour of what we do, which is kind of collective in the process, but also in terms of why we're doing it. It is for the collective. Sam, that's a great response because it reminds me of much of your work because it examines the agency of architecture. And it definitely also reminds me of a key institute conference um, in 2016 for the Australian Institute of Architects, the National Conference. You and um, co-curators created How Soon Is Now, as it was titled and held in Adelaide at the time with Ben and Cameron. Can you tell us a bit more of the work at the time and how you've seen those topics evolve through our current um, yeah, <laughs> times. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, maybe even to start off with the, with the title, How Soon Is Now, um, 
you know, the, the kind of question of, of, of time is a really important one. You know, it's that thing about, um, you know, uh, uh, what is what is the time that we're living in? Um, you know, when do we when do we kind of um, when when do we live in the present, understanding that the present is something that is a, a result of kind of past actions and past events, and it also the way in which um, the present kind of shapes the future. And you know, what Cameron, Ben, and I were trying to do was to really um, bring a expansive and an inclusive conversation to the kind of the Australian profession around architectural agency and around and to bring in a whole lot of kind of quite amazing people that we were looking at around the world who were doing work not in necessarily in the traditional um, realm of architectural practice or they might have been working in kind of you know in terms of what looked on the outset like kind of traditional you know building practices but what they were trying to do and what they were, were exploring was something um they were positioning what they were doing in a very kind of different way. And we really wanted to open up the discussion that was being had in Australia, particularly at the time, which we felt to be quite limited around the formal art of building and to think more around um, what architecture does, what architecture does in terms of cities, what architecture does in terms of regions, what architecture does in terms of the kind of the driving questions of our time, which were things like um, population, you know, growth, um, aging populations, uh, the climate crisis, uh, the kind of, you know, violence, the brutality of kind of, you know, the events that were happening around the world and just to have a conversation around these kind of topics because I think, you know, that was something that we kind of needed or felt we needed at the time in the, in the profession. Because I think that's the true form of advocacy um, that um, I think in your work, because it highlights why it's important to have a discussion about these key topics and why it's relevant and more importantly, why it's important to continue f to focus on it. Because I think we've spoken about many of these topics for a very long time and several decades. And uh, many would say that the progress is not fast enough. <laughs> times and if we look back to your um, research topics and it's great to see you um, highlight some of these that are very relevant to today's um, current affairs as well because in your research mining ideology and coal capitalism as well as how um, you've introduced um, other aspects to it where you touch on feminist theories of care, collective political subjectivity, ecological systems, and even indigenous cosmologies. And I think that's a, these are at times may be seen as academic terms, but maybe if we take a moment here to expand on this topic and bring it to our general listeners, how do they begin to, to approach these topics and why have you chosen to touch on these in your major research to date? I think maybe to kind of think again around this idea of time, I was thinking today that um, I think this kind of point that it's never been so important as it is today to engage sincerely in in kind of political action, you know, um, regardless of what discipline or what area you are in, you know, like so that, you know, climate change, um, growing in, a, you know, inequality, um, you know, we, we're kind of talking at a time, you know, where um, 
in the last few months. You've had, you know, the kind of um, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, you've got a threat of nuclear war. You've had these catastrophic floods that have been, um, you know, occurring in New South Wales. You've had the IPCC report that's come out, which has been, you know, kind of paints this kind of absolutely horrifying, very kind of close future set of conditions in terms of the climate crisis. Um, and, it, you know, I think there is this kind of sense that it behoves us all, you know, whatever whatever work that we do to, to take some action and, you know, whatever in whatever way we can. Um, I think perhaps, you know, it, it's, not, it's not that we, you know, we need to work ethically now in a way that we we didn't have to before. I mean, I, you know, part of the problem is we did, we felt we didn't have to before. You know, and I include myself here. You know, like when I when I studied architecture, sustainability was a. I think when I started studying, it came in as a subject. You know, I think previously it had been an elective. So then, you know, somehow you got to you had to you had to do a subject on sustainability, and then I think later it got embedded into construction or something. Whereas, you know, I think uh, I think you know now we understand the sustainability to be, you know, absolutely essential, you know, and, and not enough as a term, but, you know, still essential in terms of, you know, how we operate. But um, the fact is we should have been thinking about it much, much earlier. We should have been thinking about it. We should have been doing it. We should have been um, experimenting with it in whatever discipline we were in, um, in a way that was as sincere and, and meaningful and purposeful as I think we are we are slowly starting to now. Again, when we start talking about um, Indigenous relationships to country and what that means and what that could mean, it has been a very, 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 very long time coming, you know. Um, so it's a fantastic that we're starting to do it now. Um, but only, uh, you know, not to say that it's too late, um, but it is, it is it is very late in the day, particularly when we talk about the climate and the issues around the climate, you know, um, and arguably kind of too late. But I think there is this kind of urgency now in terms of doing this kind of work. For me, in terms of um, looking at extraction, it was doing the work around um, the Galley Basin, uh, the Adani coal mine, uh, beginning to understand what was happening. And I said, you know, we were kind of looking at it from a spatial point of view, but um, realising that um, there were other things at play. There was, and, you know, we talked about in terms of mining ideology, there was something very particular in terms of the Australian context, because, you know, you kept on sort of think, why are we still mining coal? Like, you know, why, why is this still happening? Um, and I think if you go with a kind of a logical answer in terms of a kind of a contemporary context, you kind of you hit a blank wall, um, particularly when you deal with the facts. But, um, you know, of course, you know, this is why history is so important, is that we need to begin to understand um, the kind of the role that something like mining, the role it has in terms of the kind of the consciousness of a place like Australia, um, the way in which mining has um, played a kind of an incredibly important historic role, but also how it is kind of been the, the myth that has been kind of perpetuated um, and, of course, the money behind that myth that has continued to perpetuate it in order to, um, to continue to make, you know, huge amounts of money from it. And so, you know, I think you, you begin to kind of scratch the surface of these things and you find a whole lot of other things behind it um and i guess that's you know very much in terms of kind of my role as an academic i guess and this is you know why i believe academia is important is that you know we're, we're incredibly privileged to be able to spend a lot of time to kind of think and to read and to ask questions 
and do it and explore. So, you know, extraction, as it's situated in a very kind of particular way um, in Australia, I moved up to this position at the University of Newcastle. And part of the reason for that um, was, you know, my interest in, in the Hunter, the Hunter region. That is an incredibly interesting kind of region. It's the kind of the original home of extraction in Australia. You know, um, uh, of course, you know, the you know, mining is huge across Australia, you know, also in Victoria. Um, you know, mining has a kind of a different kind of role, incredibly important in Western Australia and also in Queensland. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm kind of interested in in what mining does across all these kind of different levels. I mean, you know, again, you know, to go back to this mining as a kind of a spatial question, you know, these, these mines are, are situated, they're local, they have huge impacts um, on communities. They have had huge impacts on communities in incredibly positive ways, incredibly necessary ways. And those things can't be um, extricated from kind of thinking about it from an environmental point of view. So, you know, I think what's really key to think about kind of in terms of green transition is climate justice. And that's, you know, work that we've also been doing with some colleagues at the Royal College of Art around lithium extraction, which is really looking at the role of uh, mining what is kind of understood as, you know, as, as not just good mining, but, you know, absolutely imperative, necessary mining if we're going to reach the kind of carbon uh, emissions reductions that we need, which is around lithium, which is the, the metal that um, is uh, used in batteries. So without lithium, we don't have batteries. Without batteries, we can't store renewable energy sources. So all the kind of solar power, all the wind, all the hydro and so on power that we can get can't be stabilised unless we have batteries. So lithium has become a, a really kind of necessary um, metal to use. Of course, also, you know, as... Um, as Elon Musk uh, tweets on, on, on occasion, the kind of the move towards um, electrical cars is all kind of based around also lithium and lithium production. So it's our kind of future hope for decarbonisation. But we can't kind of forget that with any kind of mining, uh, we're also talking about um, mining on land. Uh, we're talking about kind of violent extraction processes on land that is in in nearly all the cases on indigenous land whether it's in the chile which is um, the atacama desert which used to be the largest producer of lithium or it's now in uh, in australia uh, based in wa but they found lithium deposits all over australia now and again mostly on indigenous land so these kind of think questions around climate justice um, territory uh, ownership. Again, I see as the spatial issues, but you know, the, this work is being done again very much across disciplinary way. It's not these are not solely the kind of the the work of architects. There, you know, we're working with with lawyers. We're looking working with archaeologists. We're working with you know biologists. Um, we're talking about the life forms that are put at risk from a lot of these um, uh, extractive activities, uh, what happens to the water and the water sources. You know, all of these, uh, I think, are kind of horrifying, fascinating, important conversations to be had. Um, and it seems, I think, the kind of questions that I can bring in terms of my training to, to good use. So I guess that's the kind of mining. I think in terms of, you know, feminism and, and, and uh, feminist uh, ecologies and kind of thinking around care, I think it's incredibly kind of fascinating and compelling that so much amazing work that's happened in the last few years, um, you know, particularly the last 10 years in terms of 
political and philosophical discourse is coming out of uh, feminist ecologists, <laughs> you know, I think given these kind of two areas, you know, it's coming out of uh, female philosophers who are very much situating what they're doing in terms of kind of feminist work and also in terms of kind of you know, the work that's being done around the environmental humanities and they're really um, thinking through different ways to live together. And so I think in terms of um, kind of questions of, you know, where are we now? Where are we going to in the future? And, and what does that future look like? You know, who are we in the future? Um, I think these kind of kind of questions about, um, you know, um, who we are collectively, the kind of societies that we want to have, the kind of relationships that we have with, with humans, but also with non-humans, you know, and I think, you know, in terms of environmental ecologies and environmental humanities, it's kind of questioning around the human, a questioning around kind of kinship and kinship models, which of course, you know, indigenous societies have had embedded in their kind of law for a very long time that you don't um, only have kin with, um, and kind of deep, profound relationships with those who are who are your biological immediate family, but you have them with um, your community, you have them with the land, you have them uh, with kind of non-human, more than human uh, kind of connections and entities. I do think if we're going to survive the next 50 to 100 years, and, you know, that seems very kind of questionable, or what's questionable is what that survival will look like. I do think we need to kind of rethink the ways that we've been living, which is very much around kind of uh, patriarchal uh, kind of top-down ways of or ways of being together that has been very much about uh, separation and individuality and what are, what are the other ways that we can live? Yeah, and they're all very diverse topics. So it's amazing to see you synthesize all of them uh, to begin to, to build that relationship. And I think every one of them is very current still. So, I mean, it's it's not like um, it's a finished project, so which is, you know, why we're having this discussion. Definitely, definitely not finished. <laughs> Far from it, in and, fact. And there's, and there's some amazing people doing work around Indeed. this that I think is, 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 is really exciting. Yeah, absolutely, because I think... Uh, it's great to hear you talk about your experience earlier on how some of these topics once upon a time was elective and as a shift to become mandatory, we started to see a great push of how the architecture curriculum has changed. And now in your current role at University of Newcastle, Australia, you know, participating in uh, designing the curriculum with the program convener, it'd be great to hear you talk about how you've seen the architectural education um, curriculums evolved and changed through your past experience in different universities, as well as how relevant it is today to build that in into our current education. Because as you describe, it's so important to recognise uh, that it is um, absolutely imperative to think about the collective. And I think we might have been swayed a little where there's quite a few, you know, current debates that are at times individually focused and uh, our profession, like you describe, is can't exist um, as, a, as a sole uh, profession and, um, and we definitely rely on working with interdisciplinary professionals. And without that, we can't quite progress in any single way, I think, whether it is just a small project that, you know, is a building to a large scale where we design in uh, an urban sense. So it'd be great to hear you tease out. Where do you see it is at currently? 
Yes, because I, I realised I've been teaching for a very long time. <laughs> for over 20 years, I realise now. So um, I have seen quite a few iterations but, but um, of architectural teaching, but actually what amazes me is how little it's changed. I mean, that's, that's what I find truly extraordinary is this sense of the same processes, the same kind of crit structures, the same kind of briefs, uh, the same, you know, even some of the same kinds of projects that still happen, that, you know, still happened when I was um, studying in the 90s um, that are happening (laughs) happening today. And that's definitely not, you know, um, not in all places and not in all universities and some amazing things that happen. But um, I do think that we need to really rethink the way in which um, pedagogically um, we're teaching architecture um, because of these kind of massive uh, kind of transformations that we're living through. And and because of, you know, what I was saying, you know, before in terms of um, thinking about different ways of kind of, of living, and, and these are not kind of in terms of kind of sort of a hippie kind of, you know, like commune, let's all kind of like move to the bush and design some beautiful house that kind of allows us to live off grid. Um, this is kind of thinking about um, these kind of big questions around population density, um, migration. I mean, even just in terms of the Ukrainian war and the kind of the mass migration of people that have had to escape Ukraine and move across Europe. I mean, we saw it also in terms of Syria as well. Um, and we're seeing it on a constant level in terms of kind of climate change and people kind of having to leave their homes. So um, these kind of these questions are not um, are not particularly poetic ones, um, but they have they are really kind of key ones in terms of how we live. And that the thing about how we live, I guess, is is really this kind of question for me around solidarity. Um, this is a slight. This is a slight tangent. I will go back to pedagogy and <laughs> teaching. But um, this thing about solidarity, so, you know, um, and Hannah Rent is someone, you know, who talks about this really beautifully and, you know, does some work with um, Judith Butler who also talks about this and talks about this in terms of Arendt's work, you know, and you know, there's this assumption around um, democracy as a founded on, on like-mindedness, you know, that we have to, you know, all agree on things as opposed to actually the kind of the real the real living together or the real work of living together is living together with people that we may not agree with and that is actually the world that we live in and how do we not only live with that difference but actually kind of live in solidarity with those differences and learn from that and flourish and grow from it so i think in these kind of really kind of uh changed ways of thinking about uh, who we are and how we live and, and kind of what it looks like to live in this kind of way. The fact that we still teach architecture and run our studios in the same way seems kind of almost, seems extraordinary. You know, one might argue it, it seems obscene to be doing that. Um, you know, like it, it just it doesn't, doesn't make any kind of sense. Um, so I think, you know, the idea of a student being given single student being given a brief and then being told to kind of work through this brief over the course of a semester no matter how kind of interesting the brief and then kind of present it at the end to a group of important people whoever they are whether they're the kind of tutor or they're invited in important people who then 
hold that student's kind of, you know, future in the palm of their hand or it's felt that they're kind of held their future, you know, like their grades and therefore, you know, like whether they get a scholarship or whether they get a good job and all of those things and make a kind of a decision on it seems kind of wild. Um, and, and on the basis of a kind of that, that event-based moment of a student who's like, you know, sleepless and, you know, putting up the work kind of madly and, you know, thinking, oh, God, I've forgotten this and it hasn't printed out properly and the laser cutter didn't quite work and think, and not glued on that you know like everything's kind of falling apart and I'm stumbling over my words because I haven't slept properly and that's not quite what I meant but I can't remember how to answer it in the way that I wanted to so I'm just gonna you know like crumble in a, in a mess and you know I, I think there's been you know there's a lot of been critique of the critique you know and Jeremy Till has been you know very forward about that and around you know alternative approaches to the to the crit and the jury system you know, I think we need to we, we need to think about what, what that model is doing. I think one of the things that we talk about a lot with my colleagues, you know, Beth George, who's the program convener of the Masters, Nick Fulcher, who is the um, undergrad convener, um, and Pierre Edney Brown, who's um, we're all part of the discipline leadership team at the University of Newcastle. We talk about moving away from a top-down teaching model, you know, where um, whoever it is, whether it's the um, tutor or whether it's the, con- the kind of the coordinator or the convener holds all the kind of knowledge um, and that the students are there, whether it's first year or whether it's master's, to kind of to learn from the master. You know, I think it's this idea about the kind of apprentice model in, you know, in architecture is that, you know, you go and you work for Frank Lloyd Wright and you sit in his studio and you, you know, like you begin by, um, you know, collecting the rubbish and, you know, you, you, bring, and you, and you make the tea and then you, and you kind of like sit near them. And, you know, it's always, it's almost always a, a he. I mean, it is always in the past been a he. Occasionally now it is a she, but generally it is very, a, kind of a very patriarchal uh, uh, mastership kind of process. Um, and I think that is modelled on a daily basis in the studio, in architecture, where, you know, students, you know, create the work, you know, you know in the background in their home and then they bring it in and, and hope that uh, it, it is doing what it needs to do for their tutor to say yes or no, you know, and then the tutor says yes or no um, and hopefully the student understands what the yes or no means and they go off and they do something else and hopefully it's better and they bring it back and they keep doing this until, you know, the 12 weeks is up. So I think that model is, is a dangerous model. I don't I think there is very little, there is a huge amount of learning, but the learning is not good learning. <laughs> um, I think that, you know, um, a lot of people in practice and, you know, I'd be interested to know what you think, Sally, I can throw it back on the, on the interviewer. Um, in terms of, you know, what, what makes you um, work ready, you know, I think we need practitioners that can go out in the world and uh, kind of engage with kind of curiosity and confidence in ideas and in making and processes, you know, and, you know, even if it's on a really small scale, it's even if it's kind of a small part of the building in order to participate meaningfully in the construction of our built environment, not just kind of um, constantly trying to oppress or um, kind of imagine what their boss is thinking or wanting them to do. So, so what does that look like in the design studio? Um, is is a really is a really interesting one. How do we and how do we do that from day one? 
in first year. So how do we not just say, oh, we'll, we'll wait till masters when the students can kind of can fly and do much more interesting work and be given much more freedom? It's like no, 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 no. You can't do. You can't just kind of say we'll throw it in then. I think it's got to start at day one. It's got to start in first year. We've got to. Um, push the possibilities and the realms of what they're doing and who they are and what practice looks like and it's not about playing nice <laughs> and, um, imagining imagining what the person wants i um, know because i think uh, <laughs> you're the first one to have thrown it back to i'll say that but i think i will take up on the moment to expand on it because uh, uh, I can say it to the listeners that uh, I've been taught by Sam <laughs> and you <laughs> a long time ago. Uh, not long enough then, not long enough. Um, but I think uh, it gives me that moment to reflect on what you have just said and, and, and bringing that I'm now definitely in practice and have seen that progression. And I think a few key topics that you were touching on, I've experienced firsthand that you were trying to explore with studio structures. And I think um, one item was that um, team work and I think um, when we were going through, through when I was going through uni it was known to be something we wanted to, to push to work on because like you described in practice it's never one person finish off a project I don't believe in any scale you'd be the only one on the project because like you described you still have to work with external consultants and it, it's a team sport it absolutely is and it is interesting as you describe where we still get individually marked in school if it was the case right so in practice you never get marked individually it's a team performance <laughs> whether the project meets a deadline or not that's much you get more. a distinction but that person <laughs> right and i think it's absolutely it's very interesting where the pressure then readjust so when you know you have to focus on a common goal, it's not about your performance versus my performance or your software skills versus mine. And it's an interesting one. And I think touching on many of the subjects and topics that you've talked about today, the skills I've found absolutely incredible in allowing me to have conversations for different types of projects, for different phases of projects, to be able to speak with clients of different backgrounds and like connecting with countries is definitely something forefront of what we touch on today because every project has a public realm, a public domain. It sits on land that, you know, ownership could be debated and discussed. Absolutely. In terms of how living is, uh, you know, un undertaken, it's definitely something that's very current. I mean, you could be blindly following a brief and providing clients with uh, a result that is just built fabric. But everything has an impact, so it's absolutely important that we, we strive for a deeper understanding of what we're able to achieve. And I think uh, it touches on some of our key topics that I'm going to loop into as a closing comment, where I think when most of us sign up to architectural school, we're hoping to possibly create something that's lasting. And when we enter it, all of the subjects that are exposed to us gives us opportunity to explore what we might be genuinely interested in taking forward or having that be part of our career. Because as you build one, you might not stay in one, but it takes one set of uh, experience to develop a set of skills to then move on. And I think I see that in your line of work, which is amazing, not with one university only, but it carries through. There's definitely a thread. And I think that touches on what does it take to make change? Is it in the hands of the architect or is it in um, what we're able to influence indirectly if I was, you know, to ask a very big question of, you know, 
being able to contribute to society and being able to achieve public benefit through our work, what kind of role you see today that will be influential enough to make these changes? I think when we talked about this, I it, it, this is going to be like depends when you ask me and what kind of mood. As, as you know, I've got COVID at the moment, so you know, like I, I know that means I'm kind of a very positive or very negative at the moment. Um, I think there is there's a real danger, and this is also around uh, teaching architecture around and um, around thinking that as architects, and this is again with this idea of the solo project, um, with a kind of an expansive kind of ambition that you know that architects can solve these kind of major issues. So we're gonna, we're going to solve the housing crisis. We're going to solve you know housing affordability. We're going to kind of like we're going to deal with the refugee issue or something. You know, like all these kinds of um, larger ambitions and we're definitely we won't we won't we won't won't do that um and you know there are really important kind of roles in government around kind of policy change you know like politicians all these kinds of things you know where um where big changes can be made that said and with an election coming up and to maybe go back to the point around cross-disciplinarity and the kind of the, the world that we live in, which is in terms of kind of solving these kind of issues, we need all hands on deck and we need all disciplines on deck. We need all expertise and experts on deck in order to bring nuanced, deeply considered, but also deeply felt. And also what I think architects can definitely kind of play a key role and, and innovate future scenarios and uh, and to experiment and explore into and bring all of those skills to actually kind of create new ways of doing things. So I think it's a kind of a shift in thinking, you know, um, in terms of like, and it's all again about that idea about, you know, the sole person who can answer all the questions or actually a person that can kind of bring their expertise to the table, to the kind of collective table to kind of come up with kind of collective ways forward for for a collective future, you know, for a future where we are actually living together. So, you know, that the, the process has got to be understood as collaborative. Um, if we want to understand that the endpoint is also collaborative, you know, um, when we're kind of collaborating with others, but we're also collaborating with the world. We're collaborating with our Indigenous people, our friends, family, the land, um, you know, in terms of kind of reparation, in terms of recognition, in terms of acknowledgement, but no Knowing that that is a kind of a future that we want to be part of as well, you know, that that is important to us in terms of where we want to go to. So I think all these things have to be understood in this way, maybe to, to kind of go back to something that we didn't quite mention on that I'm interested in is this idea of care. Care has been really reclaimed in a lot of feminist thinking at the moment because, you know, it's previously thought of as kind of women's work. You know, um, there's a lot of work, you know, around the kind of, you know, unpaid labour of care, um, you know, and that care is something that, you know, like, you know, is the stuff that women do in the home for everyone and everything else. Um, but the care is also incredibly powerful. Um, and so how do we how do we bring care, not just to others, but care to the future? So what does it look like to actually not just care for ourselves, not just care for our children, but care for what happens next? And what does it mean now? What does it mean for today to have that care for the future? 
Thanks for that. Thanks, Sam. And I think that wraps up our session today. And it's great to have you speak about all of these topics and why we should take our advocacy in politics very seriously. Thank you. Thank you, Sally. It's so lovely talking to you. I always, I always <laughs> love it. And I'm looking forward to talking more about all of these things. I'd like, I'd like to hear what you think about all of them. <laughs> I'll interview you next time. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to our guest in this episode, Sam Spur from the University of Newcastle. We're very grateful for your time and thankful for your advocacy and research in architecture. Our sponsor Brickworks also produce architecture podcasts hosted by modernist fanatic and comedian Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. And the Imagine production team was Sally Sue and Jamila Jahangiri. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.